I'm Tony Epstein, and this is the Magical Mystery Tour, where we seek out and explore new ideas, new ways of seeing, being, and relating with each other and the world around us. My guest is Sarah Van Hoy. She's a Goddard professor in the Healing Arts and Embodiment Studies program. She's also a licensed acupuncturist and psychotherapist. But like many people at Goddard, she's found her own unique path through life with these 
and many other tools and experiences. Today, we're going to be talking about Tantra and very possibly about sex and love, which are totally separate topics, but we might bring them together today. So, good morning, Sarah. Good morning. So, I guess the first thing we have to do is qualify and quantify what Tantra is. Right. That's what we said we were going to do first, right? <laughs> yeah, we did say that. <laughs> it, it probably makes sense. Okay. Um, I had all kinds of interesting realizations on the way over here, so I have no idea what I'm going to say, but I let have... Let them all flow. And Pretend that we're in your living room and we're just having a conversation very informally. Right. Because this is very informal here. Yes. So, yeah, I really don't know what to say, but I do know why I'm saying it. So that's... That's a great... That's excellent. a great start. Yeah, it is. <laughs> so why are it's you... It's better than the other way around, huh? So why... <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't exactly know. It's still in the wordless realm, but... I had this strong impulse to send you that email after our last radio show on embodiment with Lisa Weil because we've done these things and we come to the edge of them and there's all there's this like little well we're talking about bodies what about sexuality and pleasure and then thank goodness it's over. So <laughs> we didn't talk about that and I managed to say some inappropriate thing before it's over but so I had this strong impulse that I should say, let's go for it and do that. The whole thing, just start with sex. And it felt like it came from somewhere important and I didn't know where, but it felt like it would help me, um, would be helpful for me. So I You thought, mean to talk about it? Yeah, that there would be some unraveling that could happen of whatever was mm -hmm. has been... Um, lately tangled up. Well, isn't that what this ongoing life has become is just this continual unraveling of stuff? That's one layer of experience. One big part of it? That's one big one part big of, side of, of it. being human. Yeah. 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 That, the tangled layer, mm -hmm. which is beautiful and gorgeous and sometimes snarly and um, so I guess I was in a, it caresses a snarly you bits. And, I was in and a snarly bits. And molests you at the same time. Yes. And on the way over here, I went to bed last night. I said, I'm not even going to, I have no idea what I'm going to say. I woke up, I have no idea. But driving over here, I realized why I'm talking about Tantra. And it was kind of obvious. To um, you. Yeah, it was, it was. And hopefully you'll make it obvious to us. Well, <laughs> it's because it's actually my tradition. Like I re-owned it on uh -huh. the way over here in some way that almost made me cry and I might cry right now but I re-owned it can you share it with us so that perhaps we can cry with you um well, I don't think it's going to make you cry but I was raised in in an ashram and it it's a ashram of Shaivite lineage so therefore it's steeped in the tantric texts and the tantric practices and when I went through my Saturn return after 20 years of practice I left and I left because I took a stand with my sisters that I wasn't going to get 
my spiritual needs met at the expense of their silence. And that was really hard because, yeah. Feel free to, f- to be specific about any of this stuff. And- okay. So um, the organization that I was a part of, the teacher started experimenting later in his life with his version of tantric sexual practices with very, very young women in the organization. I was not one of them, but I do know them. And some of these women had amazing experiences and some of these women did not have amazing experiences. And it was really traumatic. And what the organization and the teachers, plural, did with that did not have integrity from just an ordinary human perspective. It was unethical. They silenced the voices who didn't support what they wanted to make public, right? And they did so with a lot of mumbo jumbo about how people had wrong understanding. And if, you know, if you have the right secret esoteric understanding, you'll, you know, you'll see this as God and you won't be traumatized. And you won't be traumatized or you won't feel righteous indignation. or Putting the responsibility and blame back on the victim. Yeah, or, yeah, and the people who found it troubling when right. I was one of those Whether you women. call it a victim, right? Victim is a strong term. Right. So I, at some point, walked out of a, I think it was in Los Angeles, when I, I had been sort of going back and forth to see you know, where I was in relationship to all this. And I walked in and I looked at his picture on the wall and I said, I'm not going to, you know, I could sit here and have amazing experiences. You know, that's the social capital of spiritual organizations, people traffic in experiences. And they use their, you know, the thing is, well, that's not my experience, right? So in one realm, we're all connected, but in the other realm, my experience is the only thing I'm listening to, and it allows me to obliterate your experience. So I just was just like, you know what? I don't need to get my experiences at the expense of other people's silence. And I, I was then kind of, before or after that, there were moments of me being kind of dragged out of chanting groups in Ann Arbor and interrogated and you know, dragged out of my bed in the middle really? of the night in, in South Fallsburg. By and, who? Um, you know, pe- people who were defending and policing the Dharma from their perspective. The narrative is that the Shakti kicks you out. So their their narrative is that they're so acting So the Shakti police? The Shakti was policing me pretty heavily. <laughs> I was definitely not. But you said there were people who were dragging you yeah, out. Human, yeah. yeah, human beings who had decided that I was a threat. So... I left, and it was a huge thing to leave because I started practicing at age nine, and I was one of the youngest trained teachers, and I was very serious about my practice. I remember one of the last things toward the end of my experience of being in the ashram was, you know, you're familiar with, and I'm not going to drag your listeners through the politics of it, but... The one guru died, he passed on the lineage to two people, and there was a uh, conflict between the two of them, and one of them was cast out, and the other one owned the the seat. And once upon a time, the cast-out person came and visited, I was going to the University of Michigan, came and visited Ann Arbor, 
And in preparation for his visit, there were all these meetings in the main ashram with the Ann Arbor devotees. And they were very weird. And we sat in these circles and they said, you know, what does City Yoga mean to you? And and what are you willing to do to, you know, protect it or whatever? And everybody went around and said, you know, City Yoga means everything to me and I'm willing to sit in the bushes and take pictures of people and I'm willing to, you know, find out who goes to this terrible I'm willing to and they you know they passed around pictures of the persona the guru non grata and and um, you know called him names that were really in and I was just stunned I mean I was just I could not believe I was in this situation and so the circle came around to me and I said if city yoga meant everything to me I would be doing my practice the way the original teacher did his practice and I'm not so I don't get to say that city yoga means everything to me if I'm honest what explain what you just said about your practice there's something about what you just said that that doesn't make sense yeah so every you know when you dedicate yourself to any kind of practice whether you're it's ballet practice or art practice or spiritual practice you either give it your all right. or your you don't. Your heart is in it. Yeah. You really like make, there's all these subtle choices that you can make to sort of indulge something or to practice. Mm. And I, from that perspective, that was the perspective I had at the time, I wasn't doing that. Mm. So you were um, already going through disillusionment. I, I don't know if I was going through disillusionment. I was simultaneously... I was I think what I was saying was come on is this really what this can't be what this these ancient teachings are bringing us to this place where we're sitting in a room with pictures of somebody that we're going to stand in the bushes for <laughs> spiritual politics yeah and guru traditions have there's a lot of stuff about surrender and you know you're getting your ego worked on those are very dangerous things cuz you know the chance, the likelihood of being exploiting that in some way is very high. And there's, you know, like, are you meditating every day? Are you really like making that effort, whatever that effort is? My kids are soccer players now, you know, and they wake up certain mornings and they don't feel like it. They don't feel like it, which, in human terms, is great. I mean, it's great actually to not feel like it and to be human. And from the perspective of their goals as, you know, cultivating themselves as soccer players, that's a choice that they're making, right? And so that's the way I was thinking about it. Mm-hmm. I probably sound like a terrible mother right now, How? holding my children to their goals and, like, looking at them squinty-eyed when they... Do you? Um, I think I... No, I... Well... That's a whole different question. No, I really, I I embrace being human. And I think that, you know, we need to um, have days when we're not striving really hard. That was an era of my life. That was a moment when, you know, that was my answer to the question, what does city yoga mean to you? And it was also the beginning of the end of like, give me a break on this, this organization. So there's a phrase throwing the baby out with the bathwater, the organization being the bathwater. And maybe some of the teachings being the baby. And I threw them all out. 
Because mm. if you can't throw them all out, you're actually really not getting it. You should be able to throw them all out. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So I really threw them all out. And it was very liberating and very disorienting because you see how deeply colonized you are by thought forms, even if they're very, very lovely and sophisticated thought forms. Especially when they start when you're Nine. young. Yeah. yeah. So anyhow, I hadn't planned on talking about this story, but it's an interesting this one. This is good. Okay. Yeah, this is good. Um, so on the way over here, I was, and in preparation for this, I pulled out Christopher Wallace's book, Tantra Illuminated. Christopher Wallace also sort of has his roots in that's the same tradition that I was in as a child. We both were children in that, that tradition. And he became an amazing scholar of it. And I remember when I first got a hold of his book, I was so excited because he said things that I had intuited but didn't have the scholarly chops to know one way or the other. And so I was, I was interested, but I, you know, from a distance because it's, you know, the past. So I think that the short answer is choosing to get together with you and talk about this on the radio as if there's nothing to say and as if no one is listening is a chance for me to just reclaim that this actually is where my roots are and that I have a tremendous love for it and great joy and that I'm free to actually reclaim it. And Any parts of it that you want. Yeah. And leave any other parts behind. Yeah, it hadn't occurred to me that I needed to be discerning. I mean, discernment is good. I think I'll keep it around. It's, it's a tool. <laughs> it's a very important tool, but it's not the ultimate tool. It's, it's a transitional well, term. Well, discernment is what you do when you're in the tangle of things. So exactly. You don't get smacked in the face by the branches that are... Discernment yes. is what actually helps you figure out which ends to untangle. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then there's always the dissolving, which right. is... Which doesn't Which is a much juicier... But, it, but it's thing. not always available right. in each moment, in every moment. Right. Because sometimes we're too entangled for that. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, we were talking yesterday about this idea of being on the radio. There really isn't anything to say. There really isn't. And as if no one is listening, to me actually means, it doesn't mean if anyone's listening out there, because I don't care. Um it means all the voices inside my head that are always listening. You know? Mm, yeah. That have and the ones that talk back sometimes. Right. So, how, so speaking your truth when you know that there are voices with positions relative to that truth. Yeah. yeah. Part of the, the tanglement and an untanglement process yeah. that we can choose to engage with. So far, so good? So far, wonderful. I'm going to sip some tea and let you commentate. Well, I was involved in this same Siddha Yoga, and I'm curious how you defined your practice, because I remember it was a very simple practice. I want to hear 
from you what your practice was because the way you talked about it made it sound like it was much more potentially elaborate than appeared to me even from the inside (laughs) (laughs) do you because uh, i've been part of other traditions that really had very elaborate and very multi-dimensional practice that made siddha yoga seem like riding a tricycle with training wheels not that one is any better than the other in any way just that i'm curious what what this practice was that were so that you grew up with and that you're reclaiming or wanting to reclaim that's a really good question but my question is what is simple about it okay what i remember is we meditated every day and we did a lot of chanting throughout the day i mean half the day was chanting and <laughs> and there was seva service selfless service to the community to god to whatever you want to call it to the common evolution is a term that i like better being non-denominational um and then there was Shaktipat, which... Wasn't a practice. Wasn't a practice. It was a vehicle that took you along if you were able to surrender to it, to open up and be present, be honest, not get entangled in... And the entanglements are great because whatever you get entangled with are the things that you already have going on inside of you that need to be untangled. They're just revealing the work that you need to do. So that that's often part of, part of the process. And the notion that... You know, with Guru's Grace, with Shaktipat, that kind of jump-started your spiritual evolutionary process and supposedly accelerated it to whatever degree, you know, was appropriate for you or, or just was. So in all of these things, what's the simple common denominator? What inspires you to articulate that there really isn't a practice? I didn't say that there was Or that it's very simple. Simple in that in the morning, pretty much everyone meditated. And throughout the day, you'd sit and you'd chant, which was a beautiful, exquisite, blissful, joyful experience. It's like getting to sing all day long, which I think anyone who's done that knows how wonderful that is. And... For those people like me who can't sing, getting to chant is, is wonderful. Because yeah. I always dreamed of being able to sing like Stevie Wonder or someone like that, where you can channel your heart and everything through your voice in a way that's just like incredible. Um, so to me, that's very simple, but maybe that's a very simplistic term well, simplistic. I think it is simple, but I think that the the thing about it is like, why? Why are these the practices and not other practices? And what are they doing? And why bother doing them when the teaching is non-dual? Well, that's, that's another question. That's another issue. Right. Although I, that's not where I was going. But so I guess at this point, we're, we're taking a jump from the devotional side of practice to the non-dual so that's a big leap and 
sudden at this point, but I'm I'm totally game. We <laughs> I'm totally game. <laughs> sudden big leaps. Okay. Yeah. Um. So. I think that the practice is actually not the practices. They serve something else that's the ground of the practice. And one is, if one is practicing, which is a verb, which implies things that are going on in time, then one is discovering what that practice is continually. It's always sort of revealing itself why this is useful. And then because it's revealing itself and because it has been revealing itself to you in the form of other your consciousness in the form of other people in their bodies for millennia since the ninth century or whenever you know people like Abhinavagupta write it down Kshemaraj and there is this woven together thing of the teachings and the practices now you're talking about the non-dual well yeah I'm talking about so they're like saying okay we're doing these practices what's happening what and what are what is our understanding and our realization? And then that gets sort of, um, people are having realizations and they happen to be poet, scholar, amazing thing, people. And they write these beautiful things about their experience. And then those experiences get folded into the practices that follow, right? Because now your your understanding is woven with the understanding of your lineage, of this lineage of people that have come before you that are doing the same thing. So you're talking about the expanding oral tradition. Yeah, and the textual tradition. Right. My experience of doing the practice was there were these practices, and they were very simple and ordinary and profound for many different reasons, in the same way that a lot of the really profound things about being in the ashram in the same way that making food together as human beings is profound, cleaning up food together as human beings is profound, being in community with human beings is profound, and being in community asking, sharing a question and sharing practices basically just turns up the heat on that community, for better or for worse, of course. Which combined, I think, always ends up being for the better. I hope so. I did leave that particular community because there were some things that I couldn't. Right. And I could ne- I would never go back to it. Right. But you are re-embracing. The practices. Yeah. Yeah. Which so, is huge. Yeah. It is the baby after all. Yeah. Life flows in these mysterious ebbs and flows. Right. So they, they the writers who write write about the fact that the practices and the path have these sort of three layers or levels. You can practice at the level of the body and kind of really the instrument of your sort of energy body and physical body and the purification of that to become, um, to have the experience that's natural to have. A clean vessel. Right. So the, the experience of reality, of non-dual reality, is just sort of unbelievably ordinary. It's a secret hidden out in the open. It's not um, 
and unbelievably ordinary and beautiful and gorgeous and full of wonderment and nothingness and all those whatever we can say and not say about it but it can happen spontaneously and it's easier to happen if you're not you know the tangled can get in the way right the tangle can become a distraction so there's layers of the path or there's paths they say different upayas that are about untangling it at the level of your pranic and physical body and untangling it at the level of your heart and mind right and heart that's, and emotional right and that's so. where the sort of the devotional pieces help to kind of anchor and melt the heart the structures that we've created to defend our heart right yeah and melt the conceptual baggage that we carry around carry around between our ears most especially our spiritual concepts most right. especially right yeah. and then <laughs> the other than the there's like this intuitive path, Shambhava Upaya, where you kind of just get it. Like you've been given, you give, you get an awakening, you have an experience of it, and it just sort of, you intuitively get it, and, and as long as you're anchored in it, it's awesome. So I think when I say the practices, I kind of mean some conglomeration of all of those things, depending on what's appropriate. And, you know, non-dual paths, well, paths that are dualistic, which include Patanjali, right? Because yoga is about, yoga, hatha yoga and yoga practice, like we think about it, of physical asana, came through this lineage and had the purpose of purifying the vessel so that these experiences could happen, Right flow more freely right yoga chitta vritti narodaha and all those things right <laughs> i don't remember any of it super duper flashbacks right now that's like 20 years ago thank god i don't know 40 any of it. it's been a long time yeah. i'm gonna be 50 so 49 9 to 49 40 years a yoga baby holy cow <laughs> i'm speaking with sarah van hoy and this is the magical mystery tour so some of practice feels like is kind of dealing with those life in that kind of quote dualistic way yin and yang if you want to go chinese medicine on it and um i like including yeah every angle yeah. or any angle right and some of it is sort of it's not really about all of that it doesn't really matter whether you untangle it or not it's still what it is whether you're tangled or not mm -hmm. untangling helps though Right, and you're talking, well, you're not necessarily talking about the effort side of it, but it takes energy and effort to stay present. Sure, it does. For it's that worth process. It. I mean, it, just like it takes effort to be a soccer player or a ballet dancer. Absolutely. Or, yeah. yeah. And there are tools that you can learn to become skillful at using. Exactly. I'm remembering back to how much I really liked, I really loved the simplicity of city yoga. Because... In a sense, you are getting on board the guru's train. But I have some ambivalence about that because I was very young when I was doing that. I think I was about 23 when I left. Yeah, I was 23 when I left. The guru phase, a lot like having parents. And I think at a certain point you have, I don't really know any of this, but I, th I think that at a certain point you have to you have to let go of the guru 
you have to well in in the Buddhist thing kill the Buddha you have to get out from under the guru's skirts and you have to take full responsibility for yourself especially if the guru is is got some shit going on and that's an interesting thing about gurus and even the ones that we thought were so clean and pure like so many people thought oh Muktananda he's the real deal and that was quite a quite a nasty revelation although you know that Baba was one of two successors to Nityananda. I think I do know that, but I forgot. And there are people who think of Muktananda as being this... Usurper. Well, not so much a usurper, but a a showboater. He was the one who came to America and made this big deal. Right. Um, Muktananda. So I think I would step into my some kind of anthropologist mode and just notice that City Yoga and other organizations who have charismatic guru figures put a lot of emphasis on the guru in their teachings and do a lot of policing of that and put a lot of energy into basically writing the story that if you don't have a guru you are unwilling to surrender and you'll never make it and you know it's a sign of your ego you know and that the only way or failing right i mean i got that from my i still get that from my mother my mother still tells me you need a teacher she thinks i need to have a guru always She's just fallen for this kind of dogma. It's very important to have a teacher to, to at least jumpstart one's awakening process. But at a certain point, I don't know. It's, I think it's different for everybody. So there's, there's, no, there's no hard, fast rules for anybody. I think I always found it interesting, you know, whether I was sitting in church or sitting in city yoga thinking... Um, why would the world be created in such a way that only certain people had access to something that was really everybody has access to? That just doesn't make any sense. Mm-hmm. Um, it makes sense insofar as it makes some people feel special and it creates, you know, contexts for certain kinds of learning to happen. I am glad I don't regret and I don't, I'm glad that I had every experience that I had as a devotee. As a person with a guru, I am grateful for those experiences of surrender, of devotion. I'm grateful for everything that I projected. Um, I'm grateful for the positive experiences that I had, and I'm grateful for the experience of leaving it that took so many years and taught me so many things. And what is next on that front, I don't know, but I know that what I figured out this morning on the way to Goddard is that I've been in this place for a number of years, kind of somewhat tied to my marriage, which is a different story, where I've basically decided that that question was dead to me and that, that I was just loose in the world and that's just the way it was. And I think that that's shifting. That's what seems to be happening for me. And how is it shifting and what's going on? 
Well, it's shifting because I feel on a really visceral level this reclaiming of a path that does have community around it still. That community isn't necessarily the one that I'm from my memory. I would never go back to that community. I've made an ethical decision. It's not one I could ever be ridiculous to change. But that doesn't mean that there isn't still this a tradition alive in the world, which is kind of what what I'm becoming aware of. And when you say... And alive in me. So when you say there is community, are you talking metaphorically? No, I think that there's actually people. I think the fact that there's some, that there's scholars writing books about it who collect people who are interested in not just reading but also practicing and the fact that there's this huge yoga movement which by and large I have avoided for obvious reasons I feel like a lot of people who are coming to that are drawn to it because it comes from something very rich that's richer than Patanjali no offense to him and now you're, you're referring to the devotional side I don't think of city yoga as a devotional thing primarily it was because it had this guru thing going on and all this kirtan. And so, but I just see that as one sort of piece of something that was actually kind of... It's just one of the vehicles. It was just one thing. And, you know, they always talk about, well, there's paths for everybody and then there's yogas for everybody. So there's the bhakti yoga thing and the karma yoga thing and the different things. <laughs> so where does the tantra fit into this spectrum? Um, my understanding is very similar to yours, which is that the Tantra piece of it is the piece that says, that distinguishes Shaivism from other non-dual approaches. So Tantra is a particular thing belonging to a particular culture. It's not a generic word, even though it has been taken to be a generic word and then it's been appropriated as meaning sexual practices. So that's where we were going to start, but we didn't. So Tantra is actually a lineage, a textual-based lineage of practices that has pretty much nothing to do with Neo-Tantra, which is the sexual thing. And I'm going to say, I didn't know what I was going to say about this, but I figured this out on the way to Goddard. A funny thing happens when you're driving to Goddard. It does. The, the process extends. It starts, and you just trust it, and by the time... Extends forwards and backwards. It does. That's another thing. Time. What I was going to say about Tantra, I don't know in Neo-Tantra what sorts of hypothetical or actual connections are made between the practices that people invent or discover and what is actually Tantra in the past. I don't know. I know that scholars who have read these things say... There isn't any. There isn't any. There isn't anything direct. Correct. Yeah. There's all different kinds of things. There's all different kinds of things I don't know. What I do know, what makes sense, is that Neo-Tantra is an invented tradition, yay, creativity, human beings, that makes complete sense in the context of patriarchal sex and colonized sex. Sex has really been a bummer, especially for women, but for everyone, therefore, 
mm-hmm. for a long time. Yeah. And incredibly long time. Having tiny bits of insight about how it could be better is just a good thing. Mm-hmm. Yay. Whether or not that's Tantra officially or not, I think it's a good idea to be respectful and separate them. Mm-hmm. And I also celebrate people's sexual awakening. Yes. Absolutely. Yes. It's part of the overall awakening. Yeah. Which brings me to why I had this strong impulse to send you an email to say, okay, let's do that thing on Tantra. And at this moment, because I had this experience that, you know, for which I needed Larkin's help, which was that I don't really know what happened except that I had some contact with and connection with someone who, whose familiarity or something about them that had nothing to do with them, I don't think, triggered or stuck its finger into the what was nice and all that stuff at the bottom of the ocean, you know, that it's just there and then you stick your finger in and whoosh, it all comes up. You're talking about the muck? The muck, yes. Stirring it, up the muck? The muck was stirred. Mm. And the particular, the nature of the muck at first was, ooh, this reminds me of my husband. And so I did a lot of, you know, I've had a lot of time to let go of and love the person who was my husband and to appreciate how sometimes I think often the deeper love doesn't happen till you actually really let go and claim your own freedom and affirm someone else's freedom. So many relationships are built on our unfreedom and it's what makes it very challenging for me to stay in them because I get to this point of unfreedom and I just can't abide it. And I was raised by a hippie woman who affirmed, you know, that love is, that people are free. People are free. It's a beautiful ideal. It's true. People are free. They are. Yeah. As their nature. They're free as as their their nature. As their essential nature. Right. Yeah. So the thing about what, who my husband was at this point in my life now, also I realize that what reminds you of things in a timeless place can go back and forth. You can think that someone in the present is reminding you of the past, but just as easily, someone in the past could be pre-remembering you into the future. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So in this moment, I'm, think, I'm realizing that when I chose, when I really anchored, wed myself, tied myself to this man, it was at a moment when I had just left, really, really left City Yoga, and he was very, very, not just not spiritual, which is fine and great and liberating, but sort of made it impossible for me to have any conversation or retrieve any parts of that or sort of scientific materialism kinds of atheism. Like, in certain ways, Shaivism is kind of atheistic. It's not a religion that says God. Mm-hmm. It's a religion that says consciousness. And I never even thought of it as a religion. Yeah. To me, it was it was a deep level of understanding, I of th- direct experience of things that are beyond this realm that we can even conceive. Yeah. 
I think it has. It's been woven into Hinduism, so it has a little religiosity. But I would agree. I I take right. Well, just your, calling it Shaivism anchors it to Hinduism. Anchors it to Hinduism, and therefore takes on this quality of religiosity in terms of what these what Shiva. Is right, but the same practice is done in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition. It's done in the Sufi tradition. It's done in the Christian mystical tradition, and God knows where else. Right. So, this is my comment on the varieties of atheism. There are varieties of it's not God in the sense of Judeo-Christian, a patriarchal and patriarchal God, Um, and nor is it God in the sense of disembodied spirit. Yet it is not scientific materialism. It's not Western science, and it's not materialism. So my marriage anchored me. It really, like, shut the door hard and locked it and put nails on it. And, coincidentally, it was a big sexual, long sexual sorrow. It was, you know, like, I could enjoy and appreciate and love and be in partnership with my husband when we were gardening and when we were um, building a home and raising children and laughing and dancing. and But when it came to our sexuality, it was tears because there was so much more that I knew was possible that I couldn't articulate, that he didn't want to hear, and we you know, this does not make for a marriage. This makes for a nice friendship and neighbors, which is what we are now. <laughs> so the question I think that that I thought was my question was, I'm sure that my experiences and understanding of Tantra for real, whatever that was that I had some weird circumstance to be raised in, has everything to do with how I understand and what I know is possible and have experienced in terms of sexual intimacy because energy (laughs) and being fully open present and surrendering to direct experience and love and love in surrendering physically emotionally and and also because love is it's a state of being not something we do or something we need somebody to be able to have Right. right, And that being has a vibration that you can feel like you can feel sexual desire and arousal. And my feeling about, you know, what I would have liked as a woman growing up in this culture to be able to suggest or say is slow down and feel it. Because there's no difference between sexuality and meditation they're different experiences but it was always stunning to me that people who were really good meditators did not carry that over into their sexual practice or necessarily into any other part of their life right but particularly sad that it wasn't carried over (laughs) into their sexual practice Um, particularly disappointing yes also i would say worship figures into you know like enacting your love through worship is also a part, I think, of the big basket of sexual potential. Talk more about what you mean by that. I'm smiling. <laughs> I'm just because I'm like, well, should I just say that? 
No. Um, okay, so I'm just going to back up a little bit. And the thought that's happening right now is how lovely is it that all of these really juicy practices that can become so unpleasant when they're squeezed into religious or unfree spiritualities. They can become so like, oh, you feel sorry for people, right? Oh, I'm so sorry that you're stuck in that box of thing that you think you have to do. Yet, they can be unlocked and really savored. And one of the places of you know, unlocking worship is in the experience of pleasuring, giving and sharing pleasure in a way that really experiences the other person as, you know, their deepest, truest, sacred yummy. Yes. Mm. Right? Yes. And that invokes this kind of sweet kind of devotional bhav, right? That word? Yeah. Yeah. Now you're talking. Rather than sort of like mechanistic sex. I know that first what I have to do to her body or his, his body, you don't have to do anything to. It's always ready, right? Or, That's the narrative. or at least you have to get to the goal. Right. I'm going to, <laughs> I'm going to do this thing and I'm going to do that thing. And then, you know, it'll be ready for the next thing. And it's all, oh my God, of, you know, uh, how unpleasant and how sad and how many times I've. How limiting. Yeah. Entangled. Um, entangled. Um, choked. Choked. You've got a lot of words. You're feeling it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. N- now that reminds me, I was telling you about the Eureka tradition that I, it's not really a tradition that, that I was part of, and that's the way we approached all our interactions, all the work we did together, because we did a lot of group work, did a lot of process, and we we combined the more familiar aspects of spiritual practice with with psychotherapy that we did as a group. We had no hierarchy. We had no leaders. We were all equals. We were all sitting in circles together. Nobody led. And we always began by what you described as a kind of a worship of each other's essential nature. And that essentially created a sacred space and a sacred relationship in everything we did with each other. No matter whether we were in an intimate relationship with them, whether we were housemates, or whether we were just part of the same community with no other interest or attraction for each other. And it was an incredibly powerful and beautiful way of approaching everything, life, relationship and oneself because as we're doing it to another we're doing it to ourselves as well and that's one of the biggest challenges in our culture because pretty much everybody who is attracted to Eureka were pretty nutty and neurotic just like pretty much every all the other people that are attracted to any spiritual tradition because they're having issues or problems or disillusionment with the the world that we live in for all sorts of reasons. Mm-hmm. And so there's lots of unraveling to be done in very unique ways, unique to each person. But we all shared that process with each other. 
And that was another thing that made us all family, made us all fall in love with each other, whether it was romantic, sexual, or just friends. We were like brothers and sisters. And when we met each other, like later on, we would meet each other like, like old lovers who had not lost anything. A while back, I met a woman who I actually had virtually no contact with in this community, even though we both lived in this community for about five years. I had very little contact with her, didn't really know her. But when we saw each other after like 25 years, it was like homecoming. It was revelatory, the depth of connection there that we had never even directly experienced prior to that. And yet, because of remembering the practice of honoring each other that we had learned to practice. And that was the essence of our practice, which is actually the essence of all of these practices, to see God in each other, which is a simple way of doing it. But it's the same principle. Right. See God in each other. And feel it, and really feel it. Not just abstractly, intellectually, but to feel it. Right, there is a feeling, then the feeling is love. Exactly. And it's, it's a oneness love, not a cathecting love. Right. And it, that oneness love is like that river that you always return to. It's not a narcissistic love, it's, it's an interconnected. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why this whole funny thing about what are we remembering when we connect on that level, we are remembering our oneness. Mm-hmm. Not that we don't have lots of experience of our entanglements and revisiting our entanglements and having entanglement issues being triggered continually through this process. Well, I think what's really lovely about what you just shared is that some of the things that I remember from City Yoga is that everybody, w- w- there was this thing, see God in each other. You know, people are whatever God uh, translates as in that tradition. And yet, you know, that was sort of the spiritual thing. And then in people's actual relating, they were unkind, right? As opposed to having this seamless continuity between the deep you that is God and all of this neurotic stuff that's also just God because na shivam vidyate kwachit. Because yes. everything is it. Right. Yes. So when you, ha- when you can build that experience in relationship, um, it's almost like if the practice as container, you know, can hold it, then you can create guru, right? You create teacher, that function comes through community as the principle that gives you something outside of yourself that you couldn't have done on your own, that Mm -hmm. principle, Mm -hmm. community can hold that. It can be very supportive for those of us. The whole world can hold that. Struggling on our way. Yeah. 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 It's not an easy path to follow. I mean, life, life is full of so much stuff, a lot of snares, a lot of entanglements, messy and it's all wonderful and juicy painful exquisite and horrible all wrapped up together and often it's really hard to do it alone i mean it's 
for a large, large part of it, it's almost impossible to do alone. And there is the American, the Western approach is to be a strong individual and do it yourself and harden your heart and gird your loins. And What is girding the loins? That sounds like... <laughs> the image I get is of somebody expecting to be kicked in the nuts. Oh, okay. Got it. That's the image. I, I don't know if that's where that comes from, but girding your loins, I think it's because for men, that's the most vulnerable place, but also for women, that's also the most vulnerable place in a... In a rape culture. In a rape culture, exactly. On the, more of a, an emotional level. Yeah. I think it ties in. How can Tantra help inform a responsible activist approach to the political nature, to social justice, and all these other issues, including rape and patriarchy and everything. Because patriarchy, women embody patriarchy as well in our society, so it's not just dividing men and women. My thought was similar to that, only much more focused, not on uh, the broad spectrum of social issues, but on the issue of rape culture and patriarchy and reclaiming the sacredness of bodies and in some tantra traditions uh, that I know of there were these left hand path practices that were designed to you know you are having this lovely experience of oneness with the people that you like how about really affirming Shiva in the cemeteries and in the blah 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 and, I, and in the murderers. And in the murderers. and in The violence. Right. And I, I see that uh, there are a group of women who choose sex work now in this era as a way of bringing, of pushing and expanding what we collectively embrace as beautiful into areas that have, you know, have been decided for us are not okay. And I see a lot of people at Goddard actually doing that work, just really, you know, whether it's trauma or sex work or these, quote, dark places. Being a point of light in the heart of darkness. Not even necessarily a point of light, right? Because that implies that you need to bring light and it is dark and light well, is still better. Well, what I'm suggesting is that the person is coming... Well, actually, maybe not. I think it has. it's something along the lines of expanding, of affirming truth in places where you have been told there isn't any truth, right? Mm -hmm. um, or it's just broken, or it's just exploitive, or it's just... And affirming beauty there, and, and affirming oneself, and one's... Swatantria on freedom and all of these, you know, qualities in those spaces. That's one thing. I mean, I don't think that we, in things like Advaita Vedanta traditions, the non dualism is God is not this, not this, beyond, beyond. Everything is Maya, everything is illusion. God is something that never changes. And so getting caught up, in quotes, in 
all of that, quote, negativity, you know, and we see this in the highly dualistic sort of raise your vibration new age language, where you don't want to get your pure vibration all messed up with the, you know, those other feelings that aren't so good, or God forbid, you know, don't watch the news. and Creating a, a spiritual gated community oh in the world. Oh my God. <laughs> so I don't have a whole lot of truck with that, obviously. And, you know, similarly, Advaita Vedanta has a non-dual approach that you have to drop what's diverse, creative, changing, and amazing and delicious about the world in order to have this transcendent experience. Whereas Shaivism is everything. And that doesn't mean that, you know, racism is just the way it's Shiva is meant. No, like we are actively engaged in this world, you know, moving it changing it and that care and that devotion and that love for the world fuels it Mm -hmm. it's definitely not sitting on a mountain with ganges coming out of your head right but i'll also add another thing from the left side of the understanding and that is recognizing the essential nature and the value of those who are perpetrating some of these things that we find reprehensible and horrific people who are racist and violently so. Hitler's a great example. They're part of humanity and the world's evolution and expansion. Tantra is, as you were saying, it's including everything. Yes. And it's not easy. Including saying no. Including saying no. Right. Honoring your own unique needs, boundaries, your own unique entanglements. And also your, um, I mean, I think that this thing about the individual, you know, we can get too caught up in our own unique, I mean, we're irrelevant in a certain way. We're, yeah. Yeah. Um, Ultimately, yeah. 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 So, but we, this but in the seva, this service work is, is an acknowledgement that we're here together, like a bodhisattva vow. That we are truly interconnected. We're not just going for our own yummy, delicious experience at the expense of other people. It's not a narcissistic trip. Right. And it's not just an intellectual aspiration or a nice idea. It's something that you can actually directly experience and feel right. in an embodied, fully embodied way. Right. So when Krishna gave Arjuna the experience of his true form and the f- understanding that all of the people that he was about to kill were divine souls and then the dharma is to cut their heads off in that moment yeah yeah right very violent very tantric inclusive inclusive doesn't mean comfortable doesn't mean safe doesn't mean good or bad right or wrong Yay, we did it.
Okay, so I found this juicy quote while Sinead was singing that is connected because she's singing, which is the super deep metaphor of all of what's happening here because we're all a big Asponda vibration. And so this is something from Christopher Wallace. These are his words, and I love them. They make me giggle. Everything, stones, trees, birds, human beings, gods and demons, is a harmonic vibration of that one supreme word. Her dominant powers are Swatantriya Shakti, the power of absolute freedom, and Vimarsha Shakti, the power of self-awareness. She is most fully expressed in the human experience of the state of fully self-aware, expansive wonder, where consciousness is suffused with the sudden rapture of great beauty, vibrating with awestruck joy. There it is. There it is. <laughs> and we did have a caller who wanted to get in that, along with the violence that we acknowledged out there, that part of this unraveling journey is is also to fully own and acknowledge the violence that we carry within ourselves. Absolutely. And that sometimes comes out in ways that we may not feel good about. Mm-hmm. And others may not feel good about either. Yes. And this is part of life. It's part of the unraveling and the learning and growing and expanding to embrace all of it. Right. Because we can't reject it. We're not gonna we're not gonna evolve by rejecting that part of ourselves. But we can choose to not inflict it. Become aware of it. And be more skillful with that energy. Mm-hmm. Yes. It's energy that's fueling everything. Yeah. And that's a great example of how the teaching moments happen in the world and in community because those reminders from your caller are... Very important. Yes. Yes. And that's about it. That's about it for this Magical Mystery Tour. I've been speaking with Sarah Van Hoy. Thank you so much. This has been a delicious conversation. It was fun. I think we'll probably do more on who knows what topics. What's left. On what... If, yeah, whatever's, if there's anything left. Yeah. And thank you all for listening. Until next time, have a great week.